everybody. This is Taylor Callum, the pastor at Horkin Baptist Church. Hope you are doing great today. This is not a Sunday sermon that you're about to listen to. What you're about to listen to is a Wednesday night prayer meeting lesson. As we've been meeting on Wednesday nights, we've been taking a class together called Biblical Theology. And this was class number six called The Story of the People of God, where we explore the question of who is the church and what is the relationship today between Israel and the church? Now, I wanted to say this to start off with, just to let you know that it wasn't a normal sermon, and then also to let you know that the teaching here was based off of teaching provided by Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and their Sunday school material. So this was edited by me and taught by me. But this class was originally taught by two men named Jonathan Lehman and Justin Sock at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And if you go to their website at catbap.org, C-A-P-B-A-P.org, and look under their core seminar sections, you'll be able to read this full teaching and many others that have truly blessed me and blessed this church. And I just wanted to make sure that we give credit to where credit is due. And if you want more content for Sunday School and other stuff, I would highly recommend Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I hope you enjoy this teaching as we explore the question of who are God's people? We read that the church is like a body, a flock of sheep, branches of a vine, a bride, a temple, God's building, a people, exiles, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, salt of the earth, and on and on it goes. The images keep coming and coming and coming, one piled on top of the other. It's like flipping through a photo album. The church is unlike anything on earth. It's simultaneously family-like, body-like, flock-like. You get the idea. That's a hard picture to even draw, even for the best artist. The question, of course, is what do we learn from these metaphors and what is the church? If you've been here for the past few weeks, you know we've been tracing different themes through the biblical canon. Biblical theology begins with the assumption the Bible, though authored by many different human authors over thousands of years by individuals from different cultures speaking different languages, is also the product of one divine author with one story that he's been telling. And it all leads back to the person and work and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, there's many subplots. There's many short stories in between this big story, but it's all about that one big story in the story of the Bible. Now, let's begin in the beginning. I'll say, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I'll also say this, we're going to quote a lot of scriptures tonight. I'm not going to tell you to turn anywhere unless you really want to. So if you're an expert flipper, then then you can carry along with me. Um, But just know that if I'm telling you to call something out, then we might read a verse and then move on pretty quickly. But we'll start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The story of the Bible is the story of two seeds. And the story starts in Genesis 3.15. When God cursed the serpent, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, or literally seed, and her offspring, or literally seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As God cursed the serpent, he promised that a holy line of people would come from this woman and this holy offspring, this holy seed, this holy people, would be at war with the seed of the serpent. Eventually, one from this line would bruise the head of the snake, and in the process, the snake would bruise his heel. It's this image of stomping on a stake 
in your garden. And as you go to kill it and you crush its head, it bites you. And in the process of you killing the snake, it also injects its poisonous venom into your veins. You kill the snake, but in the process, you're bitten. So the rest of the story is the story of this seed and the woman and eventually the snake crusher. Turn to Genesis 10 now. Turn to Genesis 10. If you're going to keep up with me. If not, that's okay. If you turn there, if you're one of the expert flippers, and just by looking at the chapter, what do you see in Genesis 10? It's a genealogy. Absolutely. Good job, Lois. Um, it's a genealogy. or what This in chapter 10 is sometimes called the table of nations. And notice specifically how the genealogy is laid out. It's about Noah's three sons and how each of their sons, um, how all their descendants are spreading out. So in verse 1, it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth. Verse 6, the sons of Ham. Verse 21, to Shem also, the father of all the children. But now turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. What story is in Genesis 11? Anybody? The Tower of Babel. Absolutely. There's the story of the Tower of Babel in verse 1. But of course, as these people raise themselves up against God, so in verse 8, the Lord disperses them all over the face of the earth. And then you look at verse 10 of chapter 11. What do you see in verse 10 of chapter 11? Absolutely right, Harvey. The records of the genealogy of Shem, another genealogy. But we just got a genealogy of Shem in chapter 10. Why on earth is there a second genealogy of Shem only one chapter later? Well, these genealogies, in a sense, trace out the two seeds from Genesis 3. In Genesis 10, we have the seed of the serpent, the seed of all of fallen humanity from Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And in Genesis 11, the follows the seed of the woman. God specifically called out people through whom victory over the serpent and sin will come. So, for instance, two weeks ago, we, we thought about the storyline of kingdom through covenant, which holds this book called the Bible together. Again and again, God establishes his kingdom or his rule through covenants. First, he establishes kingdom with all humanity through a covenant with Adam, which he then repeats through a covenant with Noah. And then at the end of Genesis 11, if you look down to verse 27 of Genesis 11, at the end of this second genealogy of Shem, who are we introduced to? Abraham. A man named Abram. He's still Abram at that point. But yes, absolutely. And then in Genesis 12... God establishes his kingdom on earth through a special covenant with Abram and his descendants, with Abram's seed. How does the Bible describe these called out members of God's special covenant people? To start, he calls them a nation. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, uh, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Of course, it's Abram's seed who will comprise this nation. Verse 7 it says, To your offspring or seed, I will give this land. If you jump to chapter 17, you don't need to. We learn that the Abrahamic people, the children of Abraham, or the seed of Abraham, were to be marked off by the covenant of circumcision. That was the covenant sign. Eventually, Abraham begets Isaac, who begets Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. 
Israel then had 12 children who became the heads of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, once again, if you're a great flipper, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Jump with me. (laughs) That's okay, Jenny. Yeah. Well, and the great news is if you, if you look at the handout too, I think I have Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 on here. Perfect, perfect. It's the last one on the front page. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Now in Matthew 1 verse 1, we find another genealogy. We think of genealogies as some of the most boring parts of the Bible. But within them, there's, there's a reason these lists are in our Bibles. Within them are rich and beautiful truth. We went through this two weeks ago, but I wanted to look at it again. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, to a Jewish person living in Matthew's day, this first word, uh, verse would have jumped out at them because any Jewish person who knew their Bible would think back to Genesis 5 because Genesis 5 starts with the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the very first words of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew grabs the very language from the opening chapters of Genesis and says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And even that word genealogy is is very closely related to the word Genesis. So in Matthew 1.1, who is Matthew saying Jesus is? Well, first off, by quoting Genesis 5, Jesus is a new Adam. But not only is he a new Adam, if you look back to verse 1, Jesus is also a new David, a new son of David. And who else? The son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. But wait, there's more. If you turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, it's talking about Jesus, where it says, He, Joseph, took, uh, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. If you go back to, I think it's Hosea, not certain, but I think it's Hosea when it says, out of Egypt I called my son. Who is that talking about in the Old Testament? It's talking about Israel. Because as Israel was enslaved in Egypt, so um, Jesus kind of walks the same path that, that Israel walked. He comes out of Egypt and then he goes into the desert for not 40 years, but 40 days where he's tempted by the devil. Um, And you see Jesus as being depicted as the new Israel in Matthew's gospel. That's even why Jesus in John chapter 15, this was a long time ago at this point, several months ago, when we went through John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, Israel was always described as God's vine. But almost every time Israel is called the vine, it's because they're failing to produce the fruit of the vine. They're they're failing to produce honorable and good works that would be pleasing to God. They're failing to obey God in the way that they were called to be God's people. But when Jesus shows up, he's not just the vine. He's the true vine. Jesus is the true Israel, the true seed of the woman, the true offspring of Abraham, the one we've been promised from Genesis 3. But now that Christ has come, what does that mean for the people of God now? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. In verse five, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
In John 15, we see this beautiful picture of union with Christ. Now, union with Christ is the greatest doctrine you probably never heard of. To be united with Christ means that all which is his becomes yours and all which is yours becomes his. Everyone in the new covenant becomes united with Christ. Just like in a marriage covenant. When I married Katie, what's mine became hers and hers mine. Union with Christ means that my sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Union with Christ means that Christ's perfect righteousness becomes my righteousness. And the same is true for all who believe in Jesus and who abide in him or remain in him, as John 15 says. Our union with Christ means that we share in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, rule, and reign, as well as the benefits that come through his atoning death and resurrection. Being in Christ, says theologian Sinclair Ferguson, means that all he has done for me uh, representatively becomes mine actually. That's why Christians are even called sons and children of God, just like Jesus is called the Son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God, but we're adopted because we're united with Christ, so we become a part of the family. Now, insofar as Christ is the seed of Abraham and the new Israel, and insofar as the church is united to Christ, such that all that is his becomes ours, We too are even called sons of Abraham, both in Galatians and Romans. But we become identified with Abraham and Israel through the new covenant, through the promise. So think for a minute. My last name is Callan, and I am a Callan by blood because my father was a Callan. Katie is also a Callan, but she's not a Callan by blood. She's a Callan how? Through a marriage covenant. Absolutely. And when Jesus and the apostles show up, we learn that it's not really blood or biological descent that matters most. It's the covenantal promise. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Because Nicodemus assumed that because he was descended from Abraham, that he would be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. That's why in Matthew 3, 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so uh, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. There's even several parts, uh, both in Matthew's gospel and John's, where he says, you are sons of the devil. Uh, And even that phrase, you broad of vipers. A broad of vipers, children of vipers. The the children of the the snake, the seed of the snake, that Jesus is using this imagery for people who we would have assumed to be those who would inherit the promise of Abraham, but because they did not believe, did not receive the promise of Abraham. That's why Paul even writes in Romans 9, 6-8, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, because they are his descendants, uh, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. What's the logic there in the book of Romans? That... Abraham had a son named Ishmael, but he's not counted as a son of Abraham. It was through the promised seed of Isaac that God's seed would go and that Isaac's line would be blessed. It is not children by physical descendant who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And finally, in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. It's not having Abraham's blood that finally matters, 
but receiving the promise that came through Abraham that matters. If you look to Galatians 6, verses 15 through 16, you expert flippers, I'm impressed that you're keeping up this far. But Galatians 6, verses 15 through 16, it says, (laughs) Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. With the coming of Christ, the structure of the people of God changes. The people of God are no longer constituted by physical descent, but by faith. That's why in the church, our infants are not a part of the church community simply because they are children. Instead, we are a born-again community. Who then should be baptized? Well, not babies, but repentant believers. I think if you look at your handout, you'll see I've got Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, where Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Again, we see that Peter is interested in a promise. And who receives this promise? Well, our Presbyterian brothers or sisters, our Methodist brothers and sisters, Anglicans, generally want to say, well, look, it's for us, but also our children. So we should baptize ourselves and our children. The problem is, the verse keeps going. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, which is to say Jews, their children, and Gentiles. It's for all whom the Lord would call. It's no longer biological descent. It's for those whom the Lord calls, whether near or far, Jew or Gentile. The people of God in the new covenant consist of baptized believers. So now we ask the question, who now are God's peoples? Well, you see, there's three ways of thinking that usually occur within the church. All these views are Christian. Um, I don't think they're all right, but they're all Christian. If you believe any one of them, you'd be accepted here at the church. But these are generally the three ways of thinking. First, There are many who would say that God has two peoples, Israel and the church. Second, there are many who would say that the church replaces Israel. Third, the church is the true Israel. Because we see clearly in the Old Testament, Israel is called the people of God. The promises are given to them. In the New Testament, the church is clearly called the people of God as well. So what's this relationship with Israel and the church? Well, let's think about what the Bible says. If you go to Romans 11... Uh, You don't have to go there because I'm not going to quote any specific verses, but uh, just to warn you so you don't waste time flipping. Paul describes Israel, the people of God, as a tree, just like Jesus did in John 15, where he's, I'm the vine, you're in me. That's great. God's people are like an olive tree in Romans chapter 11. And even Paul is very specific, and he says, the physical descendants of Abraham are the natural branches. And he describes Gentiles as the unnatural branches. And I think this picture of a tree with natural branches that are cut off if they don't believe and unnatural branches that are grafted in. Um, And then Paul even gives the warning to us Gentiles, hey, don't get arrogant um, because you're unnatural branches. How much easier would it be for God to cut off the unnatural branches and put the natural branches back in? But in this picture of Israel, the people of God as a tree in Romans 11, there are not two trees like the first view would argue. This is not a new tree that replaces the old tree, like the second view would argue. But all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are in the olive tree. All who are in Christ, the true vine, are part of God's true people. That's why if you look at the chart on your handout, you'll see that the church is described with many of the exact same metaphors used for the people of God in the Old Testament. 
Both Israel and the church are called the beloved of God, sons of God, Abraham's seed, an olive tree, God's bride, a vineyard, sheep, God's special people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Not to mention, this isn't in your chart, but it's not to mention that Christians are called Abraham's seed, children of the Jerusalem above, and most clearly in Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God that we read earlier. Now, I would argue that the third view is the biblical view. But of course, let me say, if you disagree with that and you think view number one or view number two is the right view, then, hey, God bless you. I'm glad you love the scriptures. I'm glad you're taking this study seriously. And you're more than welcome to believe that. I'm still going to love you. There's no reason to separate based on that view. All these views are Christian views in Horkin Baptist Church, and we'd welcome all three views as members of the church. Um, if you disagree, just make sure it's because you disagree with my interpretation of the scripture, not with the scripture itself. The Bible is the ultimate and final authority on everything, and it must be the lens through which we view all things. But all this leads to something that all of us can agree on. All this leads to the great consummation when God's people will be with him face to face. As John saw in Revelation chapter 7, this is the final thing on your handout. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm reading ahead. That's not, that's, that's later. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And now jumping to the end of Revelation. This is Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In Revelation, God's nation, his bride, will live with him for all of eternity as God's people. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.